I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Welcome back to an episode of the Stable Moments podcast. Today we are going to be talking about trauma-informed basics. This is helpful because not everyone that listens to this podcast or that I encounter on a daily basis knows about trauma and um, they certainly don't know about interventions that they can use while working with these kids. My intention is to break these principles down so that they can be less clinical and they can be used by the lay person and we can start to understand how a child's brain works after it has been impacted by trauma and just some simple approaches that we can use so that we can interact and be more impactful in these kids' lives. So don't be nervous that this is going to be clinical at all. This truly is basics and I have some slides prepared because I have done this talk before. Um, So for people on YouTube that want to kind of watch along, this will have some slides that go along with it. But let's go ahead and jump right in. In this discussion, you will learn what developmental trauma is, who is likely to have experienced developmental trauma, what trauma-informed means, because we hear that a lot, right? It's a very buzzword, and even trauma-informed is starting to be on the outs. Why it's so important for you to adopt trauma-informed approaches. You'll learn some basic trauma-informed principles and practical trauma-informed responses to use in everyday interactions. Okay, let's start with developmental trauma. What is it? There are many kinds of trauma, and it's important to have this distinction because people use the word trauma all the time to refer to all sorts of people, right? And anyone can have trauma. You can have a single traumatic event happen to you, a car accident, you can have a sexual assault happen, you can go to war. For the purposes of this podcast and everything that we talk about when we use the word trauma, It really is speaking to early developmental trauma. This is complex trauma that occurs during a child's core development. It's usually caused by abuse, neglect, abandonment, uh, witnessing domestic violence, witnessing sexual violence. Any of these types of things can add to trauma. And especially when it is over time, happens over and over again, and a child has a significant number of adverse events that are happening during their core development, that's really what makes it developmental trauma. It is impacting their ability to develop as a human being because of when the trauma is happening. So this can be a little bit confusing because developmental trauma doesn't really exist. Currently, there's no developmental trauma diagnosis recognized in the diagnostic manual that psychologists use to diagnose children. So children surviving with developmental trauma are often misdiagnosed with recognized diagnoses that are in the diagnostic manual. Um, You need a diagnosis often to get services, to get medications. So 
a lot of times you need a diagnosis. And so you have to rely on the ones that are recognized. And the ones that are recognized are PTSD, bipolar, ADHD, oppositional defiance disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. And it's not that their symptoms don't match these diagnoses, but they're more accurately rooted in complex trauma. So recognizing and responding to the trauma is critical for therapeutic results. And what happens when we slap these diagnoses on that don't address trauma is now we're treating ADHD. And we might do that with medication that doesn't address the trauma. Now we're treating bipolar, possibly with medication or therapy that doesn't go into the trauma. So we really aren't fixing the root of the problem. Okay, so let's talk about the impact of trauma on human development. Children who suffer neglect or abuse develop core feelings of worthlessness. They have a thought that it must be me. There is research to back up that a three-month-old in a crib who is crying and hasn't been fed and hasn't gotten their diaper changed starts to think something must be wrong with me. They don't think my mom's irresponsible and she should have changed me already. They think something's wrong with me that I don't deserve to get my diaper changed. And there's research to back up that those thoughts happen at three months old. So we are talking about core development of the fiber of their being starting to think that there's something wrong with them. These children also miss out on the healthy attachment that most children get when they're in a nurturing environment. So a child that's being raised in a nurturing er environment develops what we call a secure attachment to their parents. They trust that their parents are going to be there when they cry and when they need them. They trust that their needs will be met. They trust that their parents will come back when they leave. And when parents don't provide for the child their basic needs, when they don't come back when they need them, when they maybe dad leaves and a girlfriend comes back or a grandma comes back and they don't really know who they can rely on, uh, they don't know when they're going to get fed next or who's going to put them down to sleep, where they'll even sleep, that can create an anxious and avoidant attachment. So this has children either anxiously wondering when their parents going to come back and kind of always living in that anxious space or an avoidant attachment where they don't care who comes. They've learned that they can't trust who comes. So they've kind of tried to be more independent and off on their own. And these kids miss crucial milestones. So a typical kid we all as parents do these games with kids, right? That we babble with them, we mimic them, we mirror their behavior, we play peekaboo. All of those things are very developmentally stimulating and appropriate for children. The reason why we do these things so naturally as adults is because they are innate to us to help a child develop. But children that are being abused or neglected miss these crucial milestones. So they don't get the play and the care necessary. And they start missing things like how to play with people, how to play on their own, how to be independent. Children in a nurturing environment play the teddy bear game where now you see it, now it's gone. Now you see it, now it's gone. And this is key to development, to teach these kids something called object permanence. Basically, when something goes away, it will come back. And children who are neglected don't only not play the teddy bear game, but their mom goes away and maybe gets locked up. So she doesn't come back for a couple days. 
And this is just one example of crucial milestones that these children miss that leads to a very unstable learning environment. And finally, kids who have suffered neglect or abuse, they do not learn proper repair of nurturing parents to make mistakes, right? As typical parents, we allow our children to fall down. They might fall off their bike. We might leave them at the grocery store, right? So these things happen as a typical loving, nurturing mom. But what do we do when we realize we've made this mistake? We run in, we scoop the child up, and we say, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. That must have been so scary for you. I should have been watching you. I should have been there. Mommy made a mistake. That wasn't your fault. And children who endure abuse or neglect never get told this wasn't your fault. Somebody else should have been watching you. Somebody else should have taken responsibility for all these things that happened. So even more, they are validated that something's wrong with them and they are causing these things to happen to them. This is nobody's fault but their own. So these feelings of worthlessness become a self-fulfilling prophecy. What these children know in the core of their being is that they don't matter and that they are worthless. So when people come into their lives that try to show them, you are worth something, we love you, you're lovable, they're going to push and push and push. And usually they can push enough until we say, that's it, go to your room, or that's it, we're done, or we're bringing you back to Department of Children and Families. Often when they push hard enough, all of the promises that we have told them prove to be false. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because in that moment that we say, go to your room or that's it, we've had enough or put that down or I told you no or anytime we become punitive, the child says, I knew it, I was bad. And they push and push because it's validation to their core feelings of worthlessness. In fact, anytime you tell them you love them or you want to build an attachment with them, it's threatening to what they know in their core. So this is why they push and usually they get the desired result, which is proving to them that they are worthless and in worst case scenarios, terminating the relationship with that child. Children who are impacted with developmental trauma often can't make meaning of their world, whereas a typical child is given the space to become curious and understand how things work and understand how emotions work and they can read expressions of people and understand frustrations or happiness and how the day goes. These children really have a difficult time making meaning of their world because they're being raised in an environment that is so unstable. They're often stuck in survival mode and have a lot of anxiety. They don't have time to become curious and kind of understand how the world works and emotions often aren't rational. They can't piece things together. They may not be in the same living environment from day to day. So making meaning of their world and how it works just isn't a priority, nor are they afforded that opportunity. Children who are removed from their homes and put into foster care, put into a group home, they often are going into a new home that has a set of values, norms, dynamics that are very different than what they are used to. 
everything down to schedule and bedtime and types of food that they eat and language that they're allowed to use is so very different. And often the people accepting these children into their homes may not understand how different that is. So while they're trying to set boundaries in their own home, a new child is completely out of their element. And this is what we call a different planet effect because children can literally go from what feels like a different planet to this new home where they're not only expected to just process what just happened and to grieve their prior life and miss their biological parents and where they came from, but also they are to adhere to new expectations of them. It's a lot for a kid. So these kids are typically hypervigilant. They are often in survival mode, like I've said, and they have to remain hypervigilant so that they can survive. That has been their situation in their past. They have to be quick on their toes and know what's coming. They also usually have a heightened trigger response. So what that means is these kids can be triggered by pretty much anything that might harm them. And these triggered responses happen when they start to associate everyday happenings to things that can cause them harm. So one example would be a child associating the crack of a beer with dad getting drunk and beating up mom. And that crack of a beer sound could be anything. And that is why the next day when they go to school and somebody cracks a Coca-Cola and they start sweating and they want to go run and hide in the closet and they do that and then they're seen as the weird kid, that was just a triggered response because they are used to really bad things happening after they hear that crack of a drink. So that's the easily triggered hypervigilant piece to these kids. And just because I brought it up, I'll throw in there that these kids don't understand that they had a triggered response, right? So oftentimes in schools, we will see um, staff at school reporting that a child did something and that they're now lying about it and they're not admitting that they did it. So they might have run into the janitor's closet and tore up a bunch of stuff in there, a bunch of paper towels and supplies. And they say that they have had the child down in the planning room for three hours and the child is denying it. And what has really happened here is the child had a triggered response. They ran into the janitor's closet and they tore things up because they were literally freaking out. It was the only way they knew to regulate their body and to deal with all the anxiety they had in regards to the fear that they were having from this triggered response. And when they finally come down from that triggered response, they can't speak to what they did during that time. It was not a rational behavior. They did not choose that to do that behavior. It was literally a conditioned response that their body took over and just did for them. So then to sit them in a room and put all this pressure that they did something that you're not happy about and tell them that they're lying this just creates this pressure cooker effect that these kids are like, I know I'm bad. I already know I'm bad. I don't know why I do what I do. I don't know why I get in these situations. And because often they can't verbalize it like that, teachers, staff, parents alike just get more frustrated. And it's, it's really sad. And I am not saying anything against teachers or parents or anyone, really. I understand that everybody is just doing the best that they 
can do. But a lot of my job as a social worker was going into schools after they reported that a child was doing behaviors that were completely unacceptable and that they were lying and that the school was just so frustrated with them. And often I was able to just teach them some of these trauma-informed basics so that teachers could interact with these kids a bit better and come down to their level and not trigger their shame response. So in all the years working with children who have early developmental trauma, all of them had some common challenges. Now, not every single child had all of these, but these were all of the ones I saw, and I saw them over and over and over again. So I've got a list of the challenges that these kids have. And that list is they have a short fuse. They have this all is lost mentality like, oh my gosh, it's all over. There's no point when they fail at something or even just something very small, like they weren't able to tie their shoes. All is lost. I just, I might as well not even go to school today. They beat themselves up. Oh, I suck at this. They're emotionally dysregulated, meaning they might have tantrums, they might have big outbursts, they don't know how to regulate their emotions. They're distracted often and hyperactive. They're easily triggered, as we talked about. They're impulsive, so they lack some of the thinking that you need to make good decisions and they will just make them impulsively. They lack confidence and self-esteem. They need control. They struggle to follow through and lack critical thinking skills. So some of the trauma-informed approaches that you can use with these kids are being relationship-based, being non-punitive, empathizing with the child, labeling your emotions and labeling exactly what's happening, getting curious, being playful with them, and being very structured as well. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through these approaches. So let's start with relationship-based. Although you may have several objectives when you're working with a kid, the relationship must remain the priority. So this means you need to know when to drop the agenda. Say you have a plan to hang out with a kid and you are going to bake cookies that day or say you're going to walk them through grooming a horse. And the child is obviously upset, obviously not able to do the task. Your priority is the relationship. You're not going to say, well, damn it, Sophie, we're going to bake these cookies. Or, well, I really need to teach you the right order of the brushes and keep ignoring the fact that the child's having a rough day and showing you that they need some extra attention in another area. You're not going to ignore that. You're going to be able to drop your agenda and focus on what they need. And that might be like, hey, I noticed that you are doing something different today, or I noticed that you're a little upset. Did you want to walk outside, or did you want to do something else? Also, understand how you might be able to make something their idea. Again, I said these kids need control, so maybe just the idea of you saying, we're going to make cookies today, or we're going to groom a horse, is enough to make a kid not want to do it. So if there's three acceptable things that you could use your time building a relationship, then give them the choice. Say we can do this, this, or this. I'm excited to hang out with you. What would you like to do? And have the child choose. That way, when they get bored or distracted halfway through, you can say, oh, we were just doing what you wanted to do. 
and try to redirect them back to their plan. I thought you were going to show me how to cook today. And that lets them feel like they have the power, they have the control, and you're learning from them. This addresses their need for control while keeping the relationship the priority. At the end of the day, did you build your relationship with this kid? Is there more trust? Do you have more rapport? Do they want to see you more? That is the metric for success here. Another key relationship-based principle is reading behavior as language. So oftentimes when teachers would tell me that the kid went into a room and tore a bunch of stuff up, I would ask them about the kid's day prior to that happening. And they go, oh, he was horrible all day. He, I gave him a pencil because he came unprepared and he broke that pencil up into tiny little pieces. He didn't sit still on his chair. He was bending over backwards and slipping off the chair. And then he was chewing on the collar of his shirt so much that he soaked his whole shirt. And then after lunch, he just went off and tore up the supply room. Okay. Well, all of those were very good indicators of this child having a day where they needed some extra support. So if we can read some of that behavior as language, that child is already feeling a whole bunch of shame. They know they're bad and they wish they could sit still and they're trying like heck to actually do what you've asked them to do, even though you may see it as defiance. So if you read this language as a child saying, I'm having a rough day, I'm really full of anxiety, then we might build in supports like, hey, do you want to go walk down and see the guidance counselor? If we're working with a kid outside of a school setting, we might just say, hey, do you want to go for a walk? Hey, do we need to take you out of this environment? Maybe even that question is too much responsibility put on that kid, and we can come to a point with knowing a child if we look at their body language as behavior and we can just remove them from that situation in a very kind way like hey let's go take a walk real quick another piece to reading behavior as language is reading over the top language as underlying trauma what I mean by that is if you have a kid sitting there calling you a stupid pig well we might want to react to that and we might want to be punitive but if we hear that as I'm having trouble today I cannot regulate myself, that doesn't hit us so personally. And we really need to not let anything a child says or does affect us personally. That's not what they mean. And a personal attack or a negative reaction might be exactly what they're looking for to kind of reinforce that negative behavior. So what we want to do is actually react as if they said to us, I'm struggling. And if a kid said, I'm struggling, you'd say, how can I help? And, you know, to a kid that's screaming their head off or is yelling at you, if you look at them and say, how can I help in this nice way, I can just see a kid laughing or, you know, yelling at you more. But if you stay calm, if you remain calm and you don't react in this personally offended way at their behavior or language, I promise you that you are going to do more good than harm in that situation. And you are more likely to end up diffusing that situation than escalating it by engaging in it. Another way to keep the relationship your goal and take a relationship-based approach is to meet the child where they're at. If a child says that they can't, then that means that they can't. And for whatever reason that day, even if they've done it before, that 
you are going to honor what they say. And maybe you say, oh, okay, well, what else did you want to do today? Allow them to lead. Get curious with them and ask, what can you do? What do you want to do today? You're good enough exactly the way you are today and the way you came, and I'm still here for you regardless. There's nothing more expected of you or you don't need to do X, Y, and Z for me to want to be here for you. Expectations often cause frustration with this population, and these kids feel like, I know she's going to make me do this, or she's, I know she's going to want me to do this, and I'm nervous about it, and we don't want to put that kind of pressure on them. Now, as you build a relationship, you will be able to decipher when it's a time that a child could use some encouragement, some gentle encouragement. We do want children to realize that they can do a lot of things. So you'll learn that line, but you always start with the relationship and we don't push them to do anything until we've built that relationship. Finally, a good way to build relationship is always to celebrate successes. So you want to create a winning streak. If a kid says that they can't do something, sure, we take it at face value. We ask them what they can do. But whatever they can do needs to be celebrated. If a kid is too scared to go brush a horse, then what can we do? What's the first step? Maybe we just look at the horses from the pasture. And while they're sitting there doing that, we're like, wow, look at how close you're getting. Wow, you already know the difference between this horse and this horse. See what observations you can make. And then recognize them for how well they're doing and how comfortable they're becoming. If it's math that they are having trouble doing and they're afraid of, Break it down to the easiest math that they do know so that you can show them that they do know something and slowly start building off this. This builds confidence. It creates a winning streak for them. And then always remind them how far they've come. Last week, you were standing at the gate just looking at the horses. And look, this week, we're getting even closer. We're going to go in there and pet one. Another principle of trauma-informed care is being non-punitive. That means that any behavior that the child is going to do will have a natural consequence, but you will not have an emotional response to their behavior. So if they are acting out, I've had kids before throwing the football in the barn, which one of our rules is that there's no throwing balls in the barn. And I said to the kid, hey, the rule is that we don't throw balls in the barn. If you throw it again, you're going to lose the football. I said it just like that, completely matter of fact. I wasn't like, what were you thinking? Or why would you do that? Or you know the rule or you're done. No, I just said it matter of fact. Hey, we don't throw balls in the barn. If you do it again, you're going to lose the ball. The kid actually did it again. He pegged it right at a stall. And did I go, oh, I can't believe you did that. Or did I get frustrated or did I pick the ball up hastily? No, I, I walked over to the ball. I grabbed the ball. I put it away. And then I was like, all right, let's go do something else. Now it might be appropriate that time to say, Hey dude, what's going on? Why did you feel like you needed to throw the ball? You might want to process it, but Really, you just need to go put the ball away and keep going. They had their natural consequence. You don't need to harp on it. The natural consequence was the ball goes away if you continue this behavior. And then you followed through. They did it once more, and you took the ball away. Now, I cannot stress enough 
how important follow through is. So please do not let that kid throw the ball again after you've stated what will happen if they throw the ball again. And then you go, I told you you're going to get that taken away. Please don't do it. No. If you have said, this is the rule, there's no throwing balls in the barn. If you throw it again, you're going to lose the ball. If they throw that ball again, you better go grab that ball. They better lose it because they are testing you. And if you say to them, I told you you're going to lose it, please don't throw it again, and you give them another choice, now you're starting to engage in negotiation. And guess what? This will never end. You will always be pushed to see how far they can take it. But you don't do this with any frustration. It's just their choice. If they want to make that choice, that's up to them. It doesn't affect you at all. We don't take any of this personally. These are relationship-focused consequences. Kids are used to thinking, you don't like me because I did this. Or you get mad when I do this. No, I like you regardless. But if you want to play with the football on this property... This is how we do it. That's your choice. I like you just as much whether or not you choose to throw the football or not. I don't get mad. What you do doesn't make me mad at you. I'm just here to keep you safe. So if you've chosen a choice that's unsafe, I need to remove the ball. That's it. Just simply state the expectation, state the consequence, and then follow through. They're looking for us to validate that they are bad and we're not going to do that. When you can and when a consequence involves another person, try to make your consequences relationship focused. So I have some kids on my caseload that used to steal from a teacher, right? They would take things. It's common with kids with trauma to take things as they're trying to fill a void. So one consequence for this rather than making the child return the item and say sorry and feel really shamed. Instead, what you can do is have the child write a card, make a card or make a bracelet and give that card or bracelet to the person that they took something from or that they hurt and say, hey, I just wanted to give you this. I hope you don't feel like I don't like you. In that way, the relationship remains intact and no damage is done there. And you're teaching a kid how to repair relationships when we hurt people. The next approach is to be empathetic. This is understanding the child's experience and coming from a place that they can come exactly as they are. They are good enough. And to simply just be with them. A lot of times we have the thought that we're going to do a specific thing or we're going to make a difference in a child's life. But just being with them as they are is really well, all you need to do. And this goes along with dropping the agenda and just being. Feel their struggle as your own. If a kid jumps out of the car and they are upset or frustrated or kicking dirt or angry, be aware of what you're bringing to the interaction. If you are feeling some frustration, if you have tension from work, if you're not all there or you have some home stuff going on, how much is that coming into your time with this kid and how much is that making it so that you are not present? Be aware of that so that you can kind of keep a gauge on your capacity for empathy. And then always remember the overall framework. Remember what you're doing with this child. 
Remember that you're just trying to build a relationship and that you're trying to be a good mentor. Try not to get so focused on this one moment where this kid's having a meltdown or having poor behavior or you're not getting done what you thought you would get done and try to just keep focused on the bigger picture because in the long run, this time, this time in that you just stood with this kid and hung in there, that matters more than anything. And even better, when a child is showing you an emotion, label it for them. Or if you're experiencing your own emotions, label it. Tell a child, this is frustrating. I noticed that that made you upset. Normalize these feelings for these kids. It doesn't mean that they're a bad kid because they got mad. Those are very normal emotions for anyone to feel. So when we label it, we normalize it for them. And only then, once they realize that they're frustrated or they're angry, only then can they start having the awareness that they need to deal with those emotions appropriately. And when you lead by example, by saying things like, you know what, I'm frustrated or I'm actually a little bit confused. Can we slow things down? Or that really scared me. It takes the power off of you and it gives it back to the kid. So rather than seeing, don't do that, or okay, that's enough. We're saying, oh, you know what? I'm a little frustrated or I'm confused in this situation. And then the child feels like they can engage with you because you are the one that's frustrated. You're taking ownership of the emotion. This is much less threatening and sets you up to not engage in a power struggle and even build the child's capacity for empathy for you. When in doubt, when feelings come up, label it, label it, label it. Give them that language. All right, so the next principle is to be curious. Kids are often trying to connect with you by asking questions. And so you want your answers and your questions to be open-ended. So this stimulates conversation. It develops relationships. You really want to avoid yes or no answers. Even if a child says something super silly like, can I walk this horse around by its tail? You don't want to say, no, that wouldn't be a good idea. You want to ask things like, hmm, what do you think would happen if we did that? Or that's interesting. Tell me about that. Tell me more. That way it keeps the conversation going. It invites the kid to explore more with you. And as you're doing this, you're building your relationship because you're communicating. And a lot of times kids might say crazy things like walking the horse around by its tail or, you know, can we jump off the roof into the pool? Hmm, what would that look like? Do you, how would we even get up on the roof? If you stay curious, usually the kid will end up laughing and go, we can't do that or I don't know, I haven't thought it through. But they were just seeing if you would engage with them. And they're used to maybe somebody saying, that's ridiculous. And then cutting off the communication. So play with them, engage with them. That's what they're looking for. Another trauma-informed approach is to be playful. How fun, right? You want to engage with them on their level. So if they want to play Legos, yes, even if they are a 16-year-old boy and they want to play doggy, where they walk around on the floor like a dog, you don't want to say things like, 
Aren't you a little too old for that? Remember, these kids have missed crucial milestones, so it's actually helpful for their development to go back and do some of the things that they missed out on. Some of those things are parallel play. When we're two years old or little baby toddlers, the first way kids learn to play with each other is they actually play with their own blocks and stuff next to each other and they don't interact with each other. Well, a lot of kids that have trauma have missed these crucial milestones. So with a seven, eight, nine, even older kid that has missed some of these milestones, it's actually very developmentally helpful for us to get down on the floor with them and do some parallel play. So however they want to engage in play, you want to engage with them on their level. So one way we could do this is called child-directed interaction. And what that is, is the child directs the play. They tell you what to build or what to be and how to play, and you do exactly what they say. You might only do this for a set amount of time, like five minutes, but what's super important is that they feel like they are running it. Remember, these kids have issues with control and often power struggles. So you want to give them the control and the power as often as possible in appropriate and safe ways. And during play is totally a time you can do that. So if you're going to sit down and draw, ask the child, what would you like us to draw today? And maybe you draw on your own. Maybe you guys draw together, but it's a chance for the child to lead and build some sense of identity and purpose in their relationship with you. This has become a fair relationship, one that they like to engage in because unlike a lot of their other relationships, this isn't one where they are just simply told what to do and expected to behave. By doing child-directed play, we also build their strengths, get to see their creativity, get to tell them how great they are at drawing something or digging something or playing Legos or doing something. We get to learn more about who they are and what they would choose to do. It's huge as far as building relationships go. Okay, well, so up until now, you might think, wow, this is all kind of rosy and willy-nilly and that's nice, but we need more structure. Well, guess what? The next principle in our trauma-informed approach is to be structured. Structure is craved by everyone and With these kids, it will be tested heavily, okay? We all want to know what's expected of us and what will happen if we don't do what's expected. So how I suggest that you are structured with these kids is a three-part plan. This reduces anxiety. Kids need to know what's about to be expected of them, where they're about to go, what they're about to do. So If they're having any behaviors, it might be because they're anxious about what they're going to be doing. So let them know in a three-part plan. Tell them, we're going to be getting in the car, then we're going to go to the barn, then we're going to groom the horse. Okay, we're going to go get the basketball, we're going to play basketball, and then after that we're going to do homework. Three-part plan so that they know. If you can, have them develop it with you. If you have some unstructured time with them, ask them to make a plan. Hey, we've got some time to hang out together. We've got an hour. What would you like to do today? And they can come up with the plan. And this is going to help you later because if they stray from the plan or they get distracted or they get bored, you can redirect them back to this plan and tell them this was their plan and we were just trying to follow what they came up with. 
If you're with a child all day, that might mean numerous three-part plans, right? You just tell them the next three things that are happening or have them develop the next three things that are happening. If they want to deviate from the plan, then you can actually go ahead and deviate from the plan if you process it with them. So if they say, I know we said we were going to play basketball, but now I see that there's a soccer ball right there and I'd rather play soccer. You can say to them, okay, just so you know, we won't be able to play basketball. But if you'd like to play soccer instead, we can do that. But that takes basketball off the list. And this is important because you always want to be clear with expectations. Just because you're adding soccer doesn't mean that we've added now a fourth thing to our plan. We said we could do three things. You came up with a plan. Basketball was one of them. Now you don't want to do basketball. You've chosen soccer. That's fine, but we're not going to do basketball at all. And then they can make a choice right there. No, I still want to do basketball. I guess I'll do that. Or that's okay. I don't care to do basketball. Now you've helped them make some decisions on their own. And you've helped them realize when we choose to do some things, it means that we're not doing others. This helps with kids that are impulsive because typically they just see something and go for it. This stops them, slows down the process and says, do you want to add this to your plan? Do you want to take something away? The choice is yours, but let's think about it first. Okay, so what happens when after you play soccer, the kid goes, grabs the basketball and starts playing with it? Well, now you have to follow through. You have to set the limit like we talked about. You need to state the consequence and then you need to follow through. So you can say, hey, remember basketball wasn't on your plan anymore because we chose to do soccer. So we're not going to be able to play with the basketball today. I'm going to need you to put that back. Maybe we can play with it next week. If the kid continues to play with the basketball, you say, hey, if you keep playing with it, I'm going to have to take it from you. If they keep playing with it, take it from them and be done. Take it from them, go away, walk away and allow them to choose. If they get huffy and puffy, whatever their response is, it does not matter. Do not react to it. Your only job was to follow through with the expectation that you set. And remember, this is always just so you can keep everyone safe. And you can use that language. Dude, I've got to do this. I've got to follow through because it's my job to keep you safe. Okay, so we'll wrap up here with a couple case studies just so that you can have an example of real life situations. So it, there's one case scenario of a kid that lacks identity. This is a kid that comes to you and is a shell of a kid. Anything you ask them, they don't really know. They're quiet, soft-spoken. Say, hey, dude, what do you like to do? What do you want to work on? I don't know. They look for you for the right answer and they want to have the right answer so bad that they will try to guess what you want them to say. Okay, so this kid, you might want to engage in some things. You're going to have to come up with the activities that you engage in. So you might want to give them a list. We can do arts and crafts. We can go play basketball outside. We can do cooking and allow the kid to choose which one sounds fun. Then while they're doing that, you can kind of help them develop who they are and what they're good at. Another great activity that you can do is an about me board. And an about me board is just like a dream board. But how can you expect a kid to know what their hopes and dreams are if they don't even know who they are? So uh, about me board is where you just sit with a bunch of catalogs and you cut out things that speak to you. 
oh man, I love pizza. I love swinging on the swings. I love horses. All those things those kids are going to cut out. And then you have a snapshot of who this kid is. And this kid can take this with them so that they have a snapshot of who they are, a little bit better sense of their identity. So that's a great example of how to work with a kid that has lack of identity. And slowly you'll see them kind of build their confidence in their relationship with you and have some answers for those questions about what do you think. You also want to encourage them to try. They don't want to try because they're scared to fail. But if you create an environment where trying is great, failing is great, it's part of the process, but let's just try this then they're much more apt to feel comfortable making those mistakes. So if they say they're interested in building a house and you're like, oh gosh, I don't know how to build a house. How do you think we would get started? And then you start making a list of supplies with the kid. And then you think maybe we should just try to do a birdhouse. And you laugh through all the problems that come along with doing that. The child starts to realize like the process it takes to come up with an idea and actually start to do something, start to create something. And you're really empowering that child to be able to try. Okay. I'm also going to give you a case study of a kid that engages in a lot of power struggles. So a kid that I used to work with at a stable moments program, he came and he knew it all. He didn't want to engage in any of the activities because he already knew. I know that. I already know how to do that. We wanted to teach him how to groom the horse. We wanted to teach him how to walk the horse. We wanted to teach him pretty advanced things. Yeah, I know. I've already done that. He even looked at his siblings on the property and said, oh, you're only doing that. I did that four weeks ago. I've already mastered it. So we were kind of at a loss because he didn't want to do anything that we suggested because he was too smart and already knew. And the truth was, he just didn't want to be told what to do. So we would start asking him, what would you like to do today? And we would let the decision be his. Well, he thought all the activities that we had were stupid. So, and they were easy. So this went on for a very long time. But one day I decided, you know what? I'm going to agree with him. And I went out there and I said, dude, I know that these activities are so lame. They're baby activities. Anybody can do them. But, you know, we could really use your help making some new activities for people like you, you know, people that are so advanced like you. And as soon as I did that, he looked at me and said, well, I could work on the basics again. And the basics is one of our most basic activities, as you can tell by the name. So it was like as soon as I gave him the power, as soon as I agreed with him and said, you know what, these are stupid little baby activities and you're so smart th that we actually need help from you. Can you help us develop stuff? He was able to kind of take off this big guard that he had up and say, you know what? I actually don't know it all. Is that okay? And then we were able to, from that point on, go through the activities and have some meaningful interactions with him, but not until we gave him the power. So that's just a good example of how these kids can struggle with power and control and how once we give it up, it allows them to feel like then they can be vulnerable. 
you know, it is just getting to know the basics for these kids so that we can interact with them better. Some of our typical parenting or thoughts on discipline, they just don't apply to kids who have endured trauma. And we really want to build that relationship and create an environment where they can grow, find their identity, and feel like they matter. These approaches are really meant to be applied by anyone who wants to work with these kids in a more productive way. I really hope that this wasn't too clinical and that I broke it down in a really easy to understand way. If you have any questions or a particular situation, I love to hear from you. Go ahead and send me an email. It's always Rebecca at StableMoments.com or you can find me on social media platforms. If you have a particular situation or a question about today's podcast or any podcast for that matter, shoot me an email. I love open communication and I love helping people with specific situations. If you think this podcast episode would be helpful for anyone, maybe you already knew about trauma and this was totally just a refresher for you, but there's people in your community that could know more about trauma and would find this insightful, please Go ahead, share this with them. I want really the community to just get a little bit deeper of a look into the lives of these kids and how we can interact with them better. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you know when new episodes will be coming out. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Pinterest. And I look forward to talking to you next week when we interview our first guest, who is an adoptive and a foster parent and has a unique way of loving on the bio parents of her foster kids. I can't wait. See you there.